Good morning again, friends. It's good to see you. If you would, please take your Bibles and open with me to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, where we're going to be studying verses 1 to 19 this morning in Luke chapter 20. Our brother Trey is going to finish the bulk of the chapter next week so that we keep some of our momentum in our series on Luke going. But today we'll be looking at verses 1 to 19 in Luke chapter 20. And if you would, please follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to Him and said to Him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, They said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But Jesus looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, every time we open Your Word, it's a spiritual act by which we need Your help. And so we pray now for the Holy Spirit's illumination, that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe, and lives that are ready to be submitted to You in obedience and faith. Father, please build Your church this morning by Your Word. I pray that You would keep me from error, God. I pray that You would grant your people, discernment, that we would hold fast to the truth and so persevere to the end by your grace. We ask these things, Father, in the name of Christ, confident that you hear us. Amen. Some of you may be familiar with the name John Stott. Stott was an Anglican theologian well known for his defense of orthodoxy in the 20th century. His book, The Cross of Christ, for example, is an excellent exposition of Christ's substitutionary atonement. 
1982, Stott published a book on preaching called Between Two Worlds. And in this book, Stott presented what he considered to be the key metaphor for a preacher. Of course, preachers are heralds and shepherds. Preachers are ambassadors and workmen. But for Stott, the preacher's key role was that of a bridge builder. A bridge builder. The preacher's job was to build a bridge from the world of the Bible to our world so that the unchanging truth of Scripture would come to bear on our lives in the present. This, according to Mr. Stott, was both the task of the preacher and the church to build bridges that bear biblical truth. Friends, that image of bridge building is a good starting point for our study of Luke chapter 20. This is one of those texts that we might easily dismiss as having little to do with us. As you heard in our reading, this passage deals with a very specific issue in Jesus' own ministry, His conflict with the Jewish religious leaders. In fact, Luke chapter 20 is one sustained conflict with just a bunch of different episodes. Time and time again, the religious leaders question Jesus, and each time He stymies them, even exposing their motives. That's the story of the whole chapter. It's very specific to Jesus. And from that narrow focus, we might conclude that this text has little to do with us. We're not like the religious leaders. We're not questioning Jesus. Sure, there there might be some things that we could learn from the passage, particularly about the history and the background, but in terms of our discipleship, there's not really much here for you and me. Or so we think. That's where Stott's metaphor helps us. With every text, our job is to build a bridge from the truth of the Bible to our world today. Why is that our job? Because God's Word is always speaking to God's people regardless of time and culture. God's Word is always speaking to God's people regardless of time and culture. There is no purely academic study of Scripture for the Christian. There's no place in the Bible where you can stand back and say, well, that's interesting. I'm glad that I know that now. That's not how the Bible works. We always build that bridge from the world of the Bible to the world of today because we are convinced that God speaks through His Word. Friends, if you came here today to visit Midtown and you're wondering what is this church about, here is our bedrock conviction. This book is God speaking to you and to us. And that means every passage, even ones that are very specifically about Jesus and His life and His ministry, every passage has something to say to you and to me. Of course, that raises the question, What does this very specific passage about Jesus have to say to you and me? What is the bridge from Luke 20 to our world today? I'm glad you asked. When we zoom out from this passage, we find that this specific issue in Jesus' ministry is giving us a number of reminders as to how God works in the world. How He works down through redemptive history. The passage is showing us, again, just how the kingdom of God advances. And how the kingdom advances oftentimes in ways that don't make sense to the world. So that's what I'd like for us to do this morning. By God's grace, let's bridge the issue of Jesus' day with the life of the church in 
our day. Let's build that bridge. That starts by understanding what's happening with Jesus and the religious leaders, but then we have to zoom out from that and notice these three important reminders of how God works in the world, often in surprising ways. The first reminder of how God works comes in verses 1 to 8. The reminder is this. The wisdom of God confounds foolish schemes. How does God work? The wisdom of God confounds foolish schemes. You may recall that chapter 19 ended with Jesus teaching in the temple. It was a key moment in Jesus' ministry. He drove out the money changers in order to put Himself and His Word center stage. That focus continues now in chapter 20. As you see there in verse 1, Jesus is teaching daily in the temple. But not everyone likes Jesus to be center stage. The Jewish religious leaders in particular are bothered by this. So they begin this persistent quest to undermine Jesus. Daryl Bach calls verse 1 the beginning of theological warfare. And that's a good description. From verse 1 all the way to the end of the chapter, basically, the religious leaders have this one goal, undermine Jesus. Undermine Him. The warfare begins where it must with the question of authority. Listen again to verse 2. The religious leaders said to Jesus, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. Now, on the one hand, you can understand this question. Consider what the religious leaders just witnessed. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a colt in fulfillment of God's Word. That speaks of kingship. Jesus cleansing the temple and positioning Himself at the center of Israel's life. That speaks of authority. So you can understand on one level why they would ask this question. But on the other hand, on the other hand, think of how blind you must be to ask this question at this point. It's not like Jesus has been carrying out His ministry in secret. Very publicly, Jesus has been doing what only God can do. Friends, think about the whole scope of Luke's Gospel. Jesus has forgiven sins. He's opened the eyes of the blind. He's restored the dead to life. He's commanded creation. These are things that only God can do. And they were not done in secret. In other words, the nature of Jesus' authority is not a hidden question. It's not hiding from the religious leaders. It's right there in the open. You'd have to be blind not to see it. And that's the issue here. That's the issue with the religious leaders. They're not asking this question in good faith. They're blind in their unbelief. They see, but they can't see. They've got all the evidence in the world to conclude that Jesus acts with God's authority, but they can't see it. Or, say it better, they won't see it. So before we go on, before we keep going in our study here, we need to pause at this point and just remind ourselves that one of the worst effects of sin is that it blinds people to God's truth. Sin blinds us. God has plainly revealed Himself to humanity. What can be known about God is plain to humanity, Paul says in Romans chapter 1. How is it plain? Because God has made it plain in the things that have been created. God's truth is plainly revealed. God is not hiding from anyone. The problem is sin. Sin blinds us to the truth. 
And so practically speaking, the best thing you can pray for your unbelieving friends and for your children and for anyone to whom you minister, the best thing you can pray is this, God, please open their eyes to see the truth. It's one of the best things you can pray. In fact, it's one of the best things you can pray for yourself. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things from your law, the psalmist says. The religious leaders are questioning Jesus because they're blind. And that reminds us, friends, that one of the best things we can pray is for eyes to see. Of course, the Pharisees and the scribes don't think they are blind. They think they're quite clever. But the reality couldn't be further from the truth. Notice verse 3 where Jesus turns the, table on, uh, turns the tables on them. Verse 3, Jesus answered them, I also will ask you a question. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? So Jesus asks a question in answer to their question. That's not unusual for Jesus' day. That's a common debating tactic among the rabbis. But Jesus is doing more than starting a debate in verse 3. He's exposing how the religious leaders have no standing in this conversation. Jesus asks about John the Baptist, which you remember from the opening of Luke's Gospel. Of all the things that we would learn about John the Baptist in the Gospel of Luke, this is perhaps the most important. His ministry prepared the way for Jesus. If you understand John, you probably understand Jesus. The two of them were linked. Jesus and John were linked, just like Christmas Eve is linked to Christmas Day. One prepares for and elevates the other. So if you can answer the question about John, then you can answer the question about Jesus because the two are tied together. And this is where we begin to see Jesus' wisdom. What has He done now? Well, He's trapped the religious leaders. And they know it. Look at verse 5. And they discussed it with one another, saying... If we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. It's quite the dilemma, isn't it? It's the proverbial rock in a hard place. If they answer from God, they indict themselves as being what? Blind. But if they answer from man, they risk the wrath of the people. It's quite the dilemma. Actually, it's only a dilemma if you are guilty of being hard-hearted and rejecting God's Word. It's only a dilemma then. It's only a dilemma if you, care about more, uh, if you care more about your own position than you do about the truth, which is the case with the religious leaders. That's why it's a dilemma, because they're cowards. Look at their mealy-mouthed, weak answer, verse 7. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. So mark it down, friends. Mark this down. A refusal to plainly tell the truth is evidence of spiritually bankrupt leadership. A refusal to just plainly tell the truth is an evidence of spiritually bankrupt leadership. And that's what we have here. If they can't tell the truth about John, then who are they to question Jesus? That's the point. You have no standing in this discussion. You have no foundation. These guys are bankrupt as leaders. And so, Jesus refuses to play their game. Verse 8, Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What has happened here? Jesus, with God-given wisdom, has confounded the foolish schemes 
of his opponents. They have raged and plotted in vain. In the end, it all comes to nothing. Why? Because the wisdom of God in Christ is mightier than the wisdom of this age. Friends, this should be an encouragement to the church in our day. We ought to be profoundly encouraged by this short scene from Luke 20. All around us, think about our position right now as believers. All around us, there are opponents of the church who are devising ways to entrap and expose Christians. We hear it all the time, don't we? Some new finding that casts doubt on the reliability of the Bible. Demographic data that suggests the church's future is in doubt. Scientific discoveries that make it more plausible to deny the existence of God. You hear it all the time. And if you just looked at the trends, you would think that the church is in trouble. Our opponents appear well-armed and they appear quite clever. And yet, what is the testimony of the church, brothers and sisters? It's this 2,000-year unbroken witness to the reality that the tomb is empty. That Christ has been raised. And that the wisdom of God, despite all worldly attempts, continues to call sons and daughters into the kingdom. That's the testimony of the church. Despite every scheme of the world. And despite all of the wickedness of this age. And let's be clear, that church, that testimony does not rest on our exploits or our strategies. That testimony rests on the wisdom of God. Revealed in Jesus Christ. A wisdom that finds its clearest expression where? In a cross where the Savior died in order to prove that no amount of human wickedness will stop what God is doing. The wisdom of God is mightier than even the wickedness of this age. That's the bridge from these verses to our day. Our Savior is no fool and neither is He easily defeated by the ploys of this world. Our Savior is the wisdom of God Himself made flesh for us and for our salvation. And therefore, our hope is secure. We can continue to entrust ourselves to God's Word. And in doing so, we can rest on this reality that neither the gates of hell nor the schemes of man will ever confound the Lord Jesus. That's the first way that God works. The wisdom of God confounds foolish schemes. The second reminder of how God works comes in the parable. Beginning in verse 9, Jesus reminds us that the patience of God endures with wicked rebels. This is the second way that God works. The patience of God endures with wicked rebels. This parable, called the parable of the tenants sometimes, This parable is a direct response to the religious leaders. If you look down at verse 19, you can see confirmation of that. Even the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, even the scribes and the chief priests understand that Jesus is talking about them. (laughs) How do they know that? Well, in part because of the Old Testament background that shapes the parable. Look at verse 9, where Jesus gives us the setting for the parable. And he began to tell the people this parable a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants, and went into another country. Friends, the image of a vineyard is key. In Psalm 80, Israel is described as God's vineyard. And in Isaiah chapter 5, the nation's 
failure is pictured as a vineyard that bore only wild grapes. So if you were in Jesus' audience in Luke 20, this idea of Israel being a vineyard has rich Old Testament background and you would easily make that connection. It would not have been hard for you to figure out what Jesus is doing here. He's talking about the nation of Israel. But Jesus does add a unique element to that Old Testament image. Notice in Jesus' parable that the vineyard is entrusted to tenants. You see that? It's entrusted to tenants. That is, workers who are responsible to keep the vineyard for the owner. That's significant. The tenants don't own the vineyard, but they are responsible for its well-being. So again, you can see Jesus' connection. The tenants represent the religious leadership of Israel, both in the past and in the present. The scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests, they don't own the nation, they don't own the vineyard, but they are responsible under God to care for it. Now, think back to the opening of the passage where the religious leaders wouldn't answer Jesus' question. Why would they not answer the question about John? Because they rejected John. Just like the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, they rejected God's messenger. And that's where Jesus goes now in the parable. Look at verse 10. The tenants reject the owner's servants. Look at verse 10. When the time came, the owner sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. What does that picture? It pictures God sending His prophets to His people and those prophets would preach God's Word in order to call people to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But in the parable, just like in Israel's history, those servants are rejected. Look at the end of verse 10. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So the owner's servant is rejected, just like Israel rejected Jeremiah, and just like the Pharisees rejected John. What does the owner do? Does he immediately condemn the tenants? No. Amazingly, the owner sends another servant. Verse 11, And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Now will the owner condemn the tenants? Now will he get rid of them? Amazingly, no. Again, he sends a third servant. Verse 12, And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Three times the owner sends his servants, and each time the servant is rejected. What are we witnessing here, friends, in this parable? What are we witnessing? Well, on the one hand, Jesus is illustrating the history of Israel from the Old Testament up until the present, beginning with Moses. Don't forget that the people of Israel didn't like Moses. <laughs> beginning with Moses and stretching all the way to John the Baptist, the nation rejected God's prophets. They spurned God's Word. And so the religious leaders in Jesus' day are just carrying on in that national history. It's Israel's life, it's Old Testament Israel in parable form. But on the other hand, Jesus is also illustrating for us the patience of God the Father. It's not just the history of Israel, it's also the patience of God. Think about this, friends. Three times the owner sends his servant. Three times the owner appeals to his rebellious tenants. Three times. 
Is that not the heart of God, even as revealed in the Old Testament? People sometimes mischaracterize God in the Old Testament as being severe and heavy-handed. You've probably heard people say that. Some people even mistakenly think that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different from the God of the New Testament. But nothing could be further from the truth, friends. Do you know what I think whenever I read the Old Testament? Do you know what I think about God whenever I read the Old Testament? I'm struck by the fact that He is unthinkably patient. Read Numbers. Read Numbers and think to yourself, what is this God like? And the only conclusion must be that He is unthinkably patient. Read Deuteronomy, where God says the same thing again a second time. And what's the conclusion? It can only be that this God is profoundly long-suffering. That's what Jesus is illustrating here. He's reminding us of the patience of God. Not one time, not two times, three times God appeals to these rebels. He's patient. Now, patience is one of the more astounding aspects of God's character. It might be astounding to me because I have so little of it. Patience, or we might say God's forbearance, is an application of His goodness. He's patient with those who deserve judgment. That's what we see in the Old Testament. That's what we see in the parable. But friends, that's also what we see every day in our life when the sun rises again on the earth. Have you ever thought of that? Every sunrise testifies to you that God is patient and that He's long-suffering. Our world is not any less rebellious than the world of Jesus' day, and yet God endures with us, doesn't He? He causes the sun to rise. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. That's what we mean when we say that God is patient. We're not just talking about the fact that He was patient in Numbers, or patient in Deuteronomy, or patient in Luke 20. He's patient today, friends, with each and every one of us. He forbears with us in profound ways. But there is a caution here. There is a caution whenever we think about the patience of God. God's patience should never be mistaken for negligence. God's patience should never lead us to conclude that God won't deal with rebels. In fact, that's the powerful turn in the parable. This is where Jesus goes. The climax of the parable teaches us how we ought to respond to God's patience. Notice what happens. In verse 13, the owner of the vineyard has one final alternative. He will send his son. Verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Friends, you catch the word beloved? We've heard it before in Luke's Gospel. Do you remember where? Jesus' baptism. This is Jesus telling you who he is. He is the beloved son of the Father. The parable pictures the pinnacle of God's patience. He sends His one and only Son. And yet the Son is rejected. Verse 14, But the tenants, when they saw Him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let's kill Him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw Him out of the vineyard and killed Him. We've seen it all through Jesus' ministry. He knows what will happen to Him. The religious leaders are going to bring Israel's history to a sad climax by killing the Son of God. This is their motive. Rather than submit to God, they seek to supplant God and keep the kingdom for themselves. So the, the parable 
in other words, is a, is a passion prediction. Jesus knows what's going to happen to him. But we've been talking about God's patience for the last few minutes and specifically how we ought to respond. What does, what does all of this have to do with the patience of God? Well, surprisingly, the answer comes through judgment. Look at verse 15, where Jesus describes what the owner will do to the rebels. Verse 15, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. God is patient, friends. But do you know where His patience ought to lead us? To repentance. To repentance. Why did God forbear with Israel for so long? So that the people would repent. Why has God delayed judgment on our wicked world so that sinners would repent? The patience of God, which is one of His most astounding attributes, the patience of God is always preaching this one message, repent and turn to the Lord. You see, this is the tragedy of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. They mistook God's patience for negligence. They assumed that the kingdom belonged to them, that they did not need God's Word, that the demands of the kingdom were not demands upon their life. And that's why judgment is coming upon them. That's why, as Luke makes clear in the book of Acts, the kingdom of God will be opened up to Gentiles because the nation has failed to heed what God preached through the prophets. They failed to remember that God's kindness, His patience, is meant to lead us to repentance. So friends, I don't know where you find yourself today. I do know that you probably came in with a lot more stuff and a lot more baggage and a lot more emotions than what I would even anticipate or know. I don't know where you are today, but I do know that today is an evidence of God's patience to you. Whatever you brought in with you. Why do you have another day on this earth? Why do I have another day on this earth? Because God is patient. And why is God patient? So that you and I will hear His Word and respond to Him. That's why He's patient. If you're not a Christian today, if you're not repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ, then this is the message of the Bible. This is the character of God pictured in Jesus' parable and lived out in everyday life. And His character is calling you to repent and believe. The Bible is very clear that God is patient. But patience is not the same as negligence, friends. There is a day coming when everyone will give an account to God and those who remain in their rebellion will receive God's judgment. And so the Bible holds out this call to you today. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. That's how you respond to the patience of God. You respond today. The good news is that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, bore the judgment of God at the cross. This is why Jesus is going to die. Not just because the Pharisees don't like Him. Not because the Romans get the drop on Him. He dies to save God's people from the wrath that they deserve. And that means today, friends, today is the day to respond to Him. Every day from the cross of Christ until the last day is a testimony of God's patience calling you and I to trust in Christ. So if you're not a Christian today, that's our prayer for you this morning, that you would hear of God's patience and that the Holy Spirit would do what only He can do. That's open your eyes to see the patience of God and His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus. This is the second way that God works. 
In his patience, he endures with rebels so that they will repent. The third reminder of how God works comes in the conclusion to the parable. And this is where we're going to conclude our time from verses 16 to 19. The Son of God prevails over worldly opposition. It's the third way that God works. The Son of God prevails over worldly opposition. After hearing of God's judgment, the crowd is shocked. Look at the end of verse 16. When they heard this, they said, surely not. So they can't fathom that this is going to happen. Surely Jesus is overstating things. It can't be that the nation and even the leadership would be left out of God's kingdom. Surely this is not going to happen, Jesus. But Jesus doesn't flinch. The religious leaders equivocate, but Jesus doesn't. He's boldly clear. And to confirm His teaching, Jesus cites God's Word. It's another mark, friends, of clear spiritual leadership. Where do they ground their teaching? In God's Word. Notice verse 17. Jesus looked directly at them, and He said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now that's a quote from Psalm 118, which you may remember was also cited last week in the triumphal entry. Psalm 118 is about rejection leading to triumph. In the psalm, the king, as well as the nation, have been rejected in the eyes of the world. The nations of the world look upon Israel's king and they despise him. They think he's nothing. And they... they, Think of Israel's king like a stone just to be thrown on the trash heap of a building site. Who needs such a worthless rock? The nations of the world would say. But in God's eyes, that rejected stone becomes the cornerstone of His redemptive plan. That's Psalm 118. God is going to build His kingdom upon the stone that has been rejected. So here in Luke chapter 20, Jesus is making the same point. But he has one significant twist. In Jesus' eyes, it's not the nations of the world who reject God's king. It's the religious leaders of Israel who reject God's king. They're God's opponents, God's enemies. It's the nation itself. They reject Jesus as a worthless stone. Now, this means that the religious leadership of Israel along with the nation itself, ought to repent of their rebellion. That's what we just considered a second ago in the second reminder. But right now, we need to consider what Psalm 118 means for Jesus. It means that He is the cornerstone of God's redemptive plan. He is the King upon whom the kingdom will be built. So all the way back to the beginning, when they say to Jesus, tell us your authority. What gives you the authority to do this? He's answering them right here. He's answering them right here. This is why He can cleanse the temple. Because God's work is now being built on Him, not on a physical temple. This is why He can act with such authority. Because He is the beloved Son who was rejected by men and established by God as the cornerstone. You want to know who I am, Jesus says? Listen to God's Word. That'll tell you who I am. I'm the cornerstone. 
And therefore, if you want to be in on what God is building, if you want to be a citizen in God's kingdom, then you have to enter through this man, Jesus. Look at verse 18 where Jesus makes the same point. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Friends, that's just the negative application of what Psalm 118 is teaching. It's the same thing that Hope read from 1 Peter chapter 2 earlier. If Jesus is the cornerstone, then rejecting Him leads to judgment. Ignoring Him leads to condemnation. Opposing Him is like having a massive boulder dropped on your head. It will crush you. God's plan, God's promise, God's kingdom, they're all coming to fulfillment in God's Son, Jesus Christ. And in that sense, friends, the passage now comes full circle. The passage comes full circle. Jesus and His mission will not be stopped. Not by foolish schemes and not by worldly opposition. Just like Psalm 118 said, the world can reject Christ. The world can oppose Him. The world can even despise Him as worthless. But in the end, God will exalt His Son. God will build His kingdom upon this cornerstone. Friends, you see, it's the reality of the Gospel anticipated in the Old Testament, Psalm 118, and fulfilled now in Christ. The world's opposition not only fails, but it becomes the means through which Jesus triumphs. They kill Him, and by killing Him, He is exalted. And that Gospel truth, that Gospel truth, that nothing can oppose the Son of God. That gospel truth, brothers and sisters, ought to give us hope and confidence in our day. That's the most important bridge from this text to our lives. God's purposes in Christ cannot be stopped. If there's one sentence application from this passage, an application is not always something you ought to do. Sometimes it's something you ought to believe. The one-sentence application of this text is just this. God's purposes in Christ cannot be stopped. Christ will build His church, and even rejection will be used by God to advance His promises, and therefore, we do not lose heart. We don't lose heart. We do not fear what man might do to us. Instead, we remember that the path to triumph comes through opposition and rejection. We look to Christ and secure in Him we can give ourselves to the work that He's called us to do. That's the encouragement of passages like this in Luke chapter 20. Yes, it's very specific to Jesus' life. That's true. But since we are Christ's body, since we are united to Him by faith, these texts also have much to say to us because God's Word is always speaking to God's people So as we witness the Son of God prevail over worldly opposition, we recognize that this is our victory too. Not because we are strong enough in ourselves, but because we belong to the Son who is also the cornerstone. So, may we go out with confidence today, friends. And may we go out with hope. May God make us faithful, whatever our calling, and may our faithfulness find its strength not in ourselves, but in the Lord, who has been exalted as the cornerstone 
of God's kingdom. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the hope and confidence that we have in the good news of Christ. Lord, we confess that the gospel is the good news of our salvation, that we have been saved from the wrath of God, justified before you, and therefore we have peace, God, with you as your sons and daughters. And we also confess, Father, that the gospel is our confidence, that the gospel anchors us each day so that we may not lose heart, that we may not grow fearful, but that we may instead work faithfully, confidently, and hopefully to bring glory to your name and to see the gospel spread, Father, even to the ends of the world. We pray, Lord, that you would make us faithful as a church. We pray that you would make us faithful as individual Christians, that we would not lose heart, that we would be hopeful and confident in you. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.